Hi, this is Marlene, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found on MiamiGhostChronicles.com. Go to MarlenePardo.com for information on new book releases. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and can also be listened to via Alexa, Sonos, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for scary storytelling, Nightshade Diary for classic horror and adventure stories, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests on the show. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, you can visit Strange Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com or find us on Blogspot. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi, everybody. This is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, Stories of the Supernatural. How's everybody doing today? Good. I'm good. Uh, thankfully, crazy stuff going on. Um, we're getting to that part of the year, my favorite part of the year. Besides my birthday being in October, it's Halloween time. So as a matter of fact, uh, I, I dived headfirst into commercialism, which is there's already a bunch of uh, Halloween and um, and autumn stuff and even some Thanksgiving things. And it was like, oh, well, you know, it's technically still a few months ago. But so I said, why not? So I already bought some of my Halloween um, decorations for outside. And uh, I bought a couple of, I'm, I'm still not done. I'm, I'm debating how far I want to go with this. <laughs> I bought a couple of, um, they're like uh, Grim Reaper kind of things, you know, that you could hang up outside and they blow in the wind and, we're considering it. We wanted to do one of those big giant. We were looking at a dragon skeleton, and and when then it's like, okay, yeah. But after Halloween is over, where do you put it? You know, that kind of stuff that you think about. But yeah, um, since after we once we moved, we I got rid of all my old Halloween stuff because we were just it was too much to carry. So I gave it away. I donated very few things. So basically, I'm starting from scratch, and I have out here. I've got a lot of area. And out here, believe it or not, it's perfect because a lot of my trees out here are oaks with a lot of that Spanish moss hanging down. It's like perfect, perfect setting for a Southern Gothic with a, um, with, <laughs> with a really cheaply made uh, gauzy <laughs> Grim Reaper floating underneath it. What can I say? But anyway, uh, and as to the... Um, What's going on with the chicken chicken kingdom chicken kingdom this week took a detour because i don't know in prior episodes i mentioned i had a guinea hen she finally which by the way this i had two guineas uh a, a little baby the female i brought up with some chickens because i got her just hatched and she got along with chickens and then without researching i got a white one a white male that I kind he, he bullies everybody he runs everybody ragged everybody i mean the roosters you name it but anyway she finally uh, went into the between the roots of one of the big oaks and had a bunch of eggs. She hatched them. Two of the babies died. I've got th three left. And 
believe it or not, I'm, let's see, let's see, because I've, I've read, I did some research that they're really not good parents, especially out in the wild. They kind of leave their chicks behind. Their chicks are very, very small. And the rest of the eggs that she just walked away from, I put them under a hen, a broody hen. So if she takes them over, that'll be even better. So yeah, Marlene is, uh, went to the guinea, guinea hen detour. I'm going to keep them all, by the way, because if any of you are familiar with guineas, they make great weird noises. Yes. Now, a word about our sponsor. Our sponsor is Freethinker Projects, and uh, they are providing services, Florida-based, for people, nomad lifestyle, uh, RVers, people that go from area to area, but they want some place either to receive and then forward their mail or packages to them, or they need to keep a, a, a permanent address here in the state of Florida for the residency. They can provide that service for you. Okay, this is not uh, like a P.O. box or one of these mail places, which doesn't allow that. This is an actual physical address, and they provide virtual mailbox service, which means when they receive mail and or packages, they scan it, either the envelope or the contents, depending on what you want, and uh, let you know immediately via email. And then depending on your instructions, they either shred it or forward it. Some people have things forwarded once a week, whatever you want. And again, uh, the good thing about this is also they receive uh, all size packages. So you don't have to worry. You know, a lot of people get things stolen um, where they have the, the receiving. It's, uh, it's, it's fenced in, plus they take it in immediately. So basically, even if you're in the area, they will keep it safe for you until you're ready to pick it up. They also have online notary services, which means you can be in any part of the country and you can notarize a document if that's what you need. And they also provide registered agent services for anyone wanting to incorporate here in the state of Florida, or if you already have an um, you already have uh, an agent, a registered agent, but you want to switch, maybe these their rates are less. I believe it's only thirty five dollars a year. That's a great rate, by the way, for a registered agent service. Um, look them up. It's freethinkerprojects with an s at the end dot com. Freethinkerprojects dot com, and uh, there you can review all their services. You know, they have a lot of things that can help you out, especially if you're one of those lucky people that just roams around the country. But anyway, let's get on to the good part. The good part is who our guest is for tonight. This is, gentlemen, this is the first time he's been here. And his name is Dr. Elliot Van Dusen. He's been fascinated with both the supernatural and law enforcement since childhood. He graduated from St. Mary's University with a Bachelor of Arts degree in criminology. He completed 15 years of service with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police before retiring at the rank of corporal. He spent his policing career specializing in major crimes, homicides, sex crimes, and drug enforcement. He currently serves as a director of paranormal phenomena research and investigation. Uh, he earned a diploma in parapsychology from the Stratford Career Institute, a doctorate degree in parapsychology from the American International University, and has taken additional parapsychological training from the Nova Scotia Community College, University of Edinburgh's Kessler Parapsychology Unit, Rhine Education Center, and the University of Ottawa. He is currently completing his Master of Arts in Counseling Psychology degree from Yorkville University. Uh, his parapsychological work has been featured on the Discovery Channel, The Globe and Mail, the Daily News, the Chronicle Herald, and several podcasts and radio stations. He wrote and published his first professional book in May of 2018, titled Evil and Exeter, based on a true story and investigation he conducted into one Rhode Island's family's 
terrifying haunting. You know, we're going to ask him about that, right? And on September of 2020, uh, almost a year ago exactly, his second book, Supernatural Encounters, True Paranormal Accounts from Law Enforcement, was released. And he just told me that next month he's about to come out with book two of that series. Help me uh, welcome Elliot. How are you doing today? Doing great. How are you? Great. Fantastic. Um, obviously, you. it looks like um, you, know, you went into law enforcement. And how did you ever get uh, interested in the paranormal? Was it childhood experience or what happened? Um, I was always interested in both, actually. I was always fascinated <laughs> by the paranormal, always wanted to be a police officer. And I always credit uh, the television show Unsolved Mysteries to getting me yeah, involved in the paranormal. Yeah, because, um, you know, Unsolved Mysteries talked uh, a lot about cold case homicide uh, investigations, which I found interesting. And then, of course, it had uh, the supernatural element to it, ghost sightings, UFO sightings. Um, so then when X-Files came out, uh, I thought that was really cool. There was two law enforcement officers that investigate the paranormal. So that kind of made me want to get involved in investigating the paranormal. I uh, ended up moving from Sydney to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and my mom came to me one day and found a newspaper article, and uh, it, it said that there was a local parapsychologist teaching at the Nova Scotia Community College, and uh, that's where I met my colleague, uh, Daryl Walsh. Um, you know, we were colleagues and friends still to this day, but I took two of his courses and after I completed them, uh, he invited me to join his research organization, which was called the Center for Parapsychological Studies in Canada. And that's where I started to get involved uh, with field investigations. And uh, then I got recruited by the RCMP and um, learned very quickly that you don't talk about uh, the paranormal in this police and this police force. And I have talked to other police officers um, and they've been well recepted, um, you know, uh, but then I have talked to a few others that have had kind of the same, you know, issues I did. Um, ended up becoming much like uh, Fox Mulder in, in the fact that it's- Right, it's a career really killer is what you're saying. Yes, they, they, you know, I, I would get ridiculed uh, for it. Uh, but then towards when I knew I was kind of getting ready to uh, retire, um, probably the last two years of uh, law enforcement, I, I didn't care. I started uh, kind of doing things publicly again, going on some podcasts, writing some articles and things like that. So um, I kind of just, uh, you know, stopped caring about what other people think. And then now that I'm retired, I retired in May 2020. Um, now I just do this full time. Exactly. It, it, I've spoken to so many um, first responders, police officers, you name it, pilots. I mean, people people that you're supposed to be very objective and, you know, as a matter of fact, which sometimes are the best witnesses and they'll tell you, they'll tell you some stories that you'll be like, wow, but they'll say, yeah, but I never talk about that while I was, because forget it. Then you become that guy <laughs> and it will follow you around. Now it's even more mainstream, but even so, you never want to be that guy or that girl, <laughs> whatever. That's, uh, yeah, because people remember five years, 10 years later that, well, uh, yeah, I, I've spoken to a lot of people because of that. And I've even interviewed police officers who have had to do it anonymously. Um, yes. Yeah. And I find that, I find that's big. Um, you know, that's one thing that I offer when I, when I wrote my first book, Supernat, or I guess second book, but first book about law enforcement and the paranormal, um, when I wrote Supernatural Encounters, um, I had offered people to be anonymous. And uh, I think that 
I think one being a law enforcement officer myself and two of them knowing that I'm involved in the paranormal made them feel comfortable, but then also offering, you know, to change their name, possibly their police department. If it's a smaller police department, um, you know, the right. city, I've even had to create like a fake jail, for example, because the correctional officer said if the story came out, they would know that, um, you know, it came from me. So, um, you know, I think by doing that, it made people feel safe and they, they came forward to because I get a lot of my colleagues are like, that's amazing that you were able to talk to law enforcement officers and get those kind of stories. Because just like you said, a lot of them keep it inside or they don't really talk about it just because no. of the stigma that's attached to it. So the fact that I was able to put out a book like that with real stories from real law enforcement officers and then be able to do it a second time, um, a lot of my colleagues do give me a lot of praise for that and uh you know something i'm very proud of yes and, it, and it's and it's really funny because one time i interviewed one and it was a very small police department they had a small station and it was like one of those unacknowledged everybody knew that something was going on in that station but it was like and as a matter of fact uh this police officer she's a woman and she told me that she used to uh one time you know they would rotate she would do like the midnight the overnight one time she came in and she found the dispatcher because they only had they only needed one dispatcher at a time sitting outside <laughs> with a radio dispatching from outside because of what she had heard inside the station. And she says, everybody's here has had some type of encounter, but everybody just like looks at each other, but then it's like we can't talk about this too much. Even though yeah, everybody no. had some type of experience, because it like you said, it's like unofficially, officially, it's like don't talk about that stuff kind of deal yeah no for sure for sure and uh i've actually had um law enforcement officers tell me a, a supernatural story and they always started out by i don't believe in this kind of stuff and i'm not really sure what i saw but i can't explain it and then they tell you the story so there's even some that can't even uh come bring themselves to mentioning that it it's an unknown or it's a supernatural event right and you know what i the ones usually though that experience it the most are usually those overnight, you know, when everything is quieted down. Those are the ones that see a lot of stuff. And then it's really funny, but if you tell them, hey, well, I want you to stay out there by yourself, they'll be like, no, you know, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Um, yes, yeah, very it's, true. It's, it's, it's really like, exactly like what you just said. I don't believe in it. However, you know, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Let's yeah, you hear like, that you hear that quite a bit it's it's interesting right right no you um you know i i don't know if you had any stories um elliot about officers coming up on a car accident and um seeing somebody you know you know some, most of the times along with uh, uh paramedics they're like the first to arrive and sometimes they've seen somebody standing there or even among you know how people will stop like uh you know, people, you know, regular people, then they realized that one of the people they saw was, turns out to be one of the victims. But in that in moment of excitement, they just, they, they don't realize it because they're responding to a bad accident. And later on, they come to realize that one of the people they saw standing in that crowd is one of the victims. Did you ever have a story like that? Um, I've heard stories like that. Uh, but that, that story actually reminds me of one that'll be in the the book coming out next month, More Supernatural Encounters. Um, it was uh, took place in British Columbia, Canada. Uh, I was uh, in an area where the RPMP police, and uh, it was a snowy night, roads were really bad, and a call of a single vehicle accident came in. So a female police officer took the call. 
and she made her way to the scene. She said the roads were really bad, um, you know, slush and car was sliding. She eventually got to the scene and she could see some damage. She saw some parts of the vehicle on the road. And so she figured it was, you know, going to be a fairly bad accident. But when she got closer to where the car was in the ditch, she realized it was another police vehicle. And so she got out of the car and ran Ooh. down and she, she realized it was her partner and her friend, actually. Um, wow. He was driving on the road, I guess, and the vehicle lost control and he ended up crashing uh, into the ditch. So he was unconscious. So uh, paramedics are on the way to the scene. Um, she said, ironically, a, a doctor had stopped, seen the car accident, stopped, got out and identified himself as a medical doctor. And uh, he went and checked the police officer and... Uh, he said that uh, that he was gone and that there's nothing you could do for him. So uh, paramedics showed up and they were able to get the body out of the vehicle and put it into the ambulance and get off to the hospital. They were actually able to resuscitate the police officer and bring him back wow. to life. So he was in the hospital for uh, quite a while, as you can imagine, recovering from his injuries. And uh, one day, um, the female police officer that had first attended the scene was off duty and she got a knock at the door and it was um her partner that had come from the hospital he was out now but he uh needed a walker and things like that he was still you know pretty rough shape and uh his wife and uh they had come over to uh thank her for everything that she had done the night of the accident and uh as they're in their living room he starts telling her that uh he saw everything and she said well what do you what do you mean like when i got to the scene you were unconscious in the car and uh, he said that uh, he was floating above his body, so he could see almost like a bird's eye view. He could see the police car. He could see her come on scene, her get out and uh, run to the car and check him. And the medical doctor say that he was dead. And he basically recounted the whole scene that had, had taken place. And uh, she couldn't believe it, but she was, you know, she was able to confirm a lot of what he said because she was there and, and saw it all. And... Um, and uh, I thought that was, uh, you know, a really cool story. Um, unfortunately, he's he is still alive, which is which is great. But um, unfortunately, because of that car accident, he still has uh, a lot of cognitive issues. So I wasn't able to uh, interview him. He actually doesn't even remember that incident. Okay, um, he had uh, he had brain trauma. Yeah, yeah, he had uh, brain trauma. So um, it was. It makes the story for me even a little bit cooler because it's something that could have been lost. You know what I mean? If we hadn't mm -hmm. heard that story because the guy has severe brain injuries from the accident, doesn't remember it anymore. So we would have never heard of this near-death experience. But luckily, he was able to tell his partner shortly after it happened. And that was something that um, had always stuck with her. So when uh, she found out I had written the first book, she contacted me and reached out to me. So um i have had that and and you know uh there was one other story that um a female police officer and friend of mine so i personally know her uh, had told me she said um, she used to go out and assist the traffic reconstructionists and their jobs are to go to all the serious accidents or the fatals and re reconstruct the scene they use lasers and take measurements and all that stuff lots of photograph detailed photographs um, so she would volunteer to assist uh, with this unit uh, because she had an interest in it. And she said uh, one time, uh, again, it was winter. Um, there was a single vehicle accident, but it was a fatal. So the driver was killed. Um, so she went out to assist 
the uh, RCMP officer with taking the measurements. And she said when she was in the vehicle searching around for, uh, you know, the police will search for cell phones and uh, any signs of alcohol or drugs to see if that contributed to the accident. Um, she said something grabbed the back of her uh, her uh, shoulder and, and she could tell it with the hand. So she thought it was the RCMP officer telling her to do something or had a job for her. And when she turned around, there was absolutely nobody there. Um, it was, uh, it was just her and the other police officer on scene. Uh, wow. so, so she swears up and down that it was something that grabbed her. It wasn't, you know, she didn't bang her shoulder on something. She said it was a distinct hand that, that touched her shoulder. So, um, I mean, obviously with, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> accident scenes and things like that, um, there's a lot of trauma and residual energy that can come from that. So it uh, it kind of makes sense that there would be some experiences at those types of scenes. Of course. And, um, you know, the, and uh, this is the thing that sometimes um, uh, people don't realize that uh, it, it's really funny that, that you mentioned that near-death experience because nowadays they're able to resuscitate people that once upon a time would have just forget it. They died. You know, there's uh, before they would take you to the ambulance, would take you to the hospital. And if you made it, then lucky. But now, you know, we have paramedics and they've got all the drugs and stuff and CPR. So more and more people are having that near death experience and able to retell it. And exactly like what you said, they're almost like an observer of what's taking place. And sometimes makes it makes you wonder if maybe. These people, you know, when, like I said, that sometimes first responders will see somebody in the crowd that later on turns out to be one of the victims is yes. somebody that's there, but maybe their body is like, that's it. Their body cannot be re resuscitated. They're, they're, it's beyond uh, repair. And then they go on. But when they're standing there, they're like doing that observation thing. Like, I want to get back in there, back into my body. And, but it's not a question of CPR. They're just, they just can't. Um, but yeah, I, I've, I've heard of that quite often from first responders. Um, um, we had, I had that, uh, another police officer tell me, uh, where they had a house in a certain neighborhood and there was a murder suicide at the house. And this was a few years back when landlines were more common. Uh, and, uh, they said that after, after the crime, the they didn't the, the house was kept up but it wasn't sold it wasn't rented out she says that they started to get 911 calls from that house and when there's a landline you know you can connect exactly to what the address is that it's originating from and they even at um they've started thinking okay maybe it's they somebody left a, a telephone uh, a live telephone line still in there. Sometimes they'll do that. And they even called up the uh, phone company. The phone company says, no, there's no active telephone service in that house, period. And after a while, they they would get, she says, a couple of times, two or three times a week, they would get that 911 call originating from that house. And that she says it went on for like three or four years. And then li little by little, it started spacing out more and more until it just went away. But, you know, it always makes you think, you know, what was going on there? How was that happening? 
Um, that's uh, yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. Um, I, I've heard other similar stories to that as well. Uh, in um, in the book coming out next month, uh, one police officer was getting nine one one calls from a uh, funeral home, oh, and boy. the only landline that was kind of in in that building was in the morgue part where they did all the embalming and things like that. So, um, and she said the night that she got that 911 call from the funeral home, uh, there was a worker there and he said he didn't call it. And so she asked to come in and take a look. It's, uh, you know, common law here in Canada. I'm not sure about the States, but, um, mm-hmm. that, uh, 911 calls, the police are allowed to enter, uh, uh, building a place, a residence without a warrant to search, uh, to make sure right. everyone's okay. So uh, she went in, she, you know, checked the whole place. It was just the one worker there. There was no other phone lines except in the morgue. And she said it was like ironically located next to a deceased body that was there that was being embalmed. So, uh, you know, she's not sure if, if it was just one of those things, uh, you know, I know during uh, thunderstorms, we would always get multiple static 911 calls as a police officer. Um, but, uh, you know, she's not sure if it was that or, you know, you freshly deceased person trying to make a phone call. It's <laughs> yeah. like, you're going, no, you're going. It's like, who's yeah. Wait, I think I'm going to pull a car over right now. I can't go on that call. It must have been nobody wanted. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much, yeah, that's pretty much the way she felt after after attending that call. Yeah, there's stuff like that that it's like uh, even even the 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 people that the ones that say I don't believe in that, but. Yeah, yeah, I'd rather exactly. find out. <laughs> What's yeah. uh and um you know I, and let me ask you, I've had a couple of uh officers and I've talked to that uh especially the ones that are involved in um usually in some type of unit, whether it's homicide or you know, assaults, you know, violent crimes, where they have an instance where they think something's followed them home. This things start happening at their house. Have you had stories like that? No, I I uh, I haven't personally heard any stories uh, similar to that. Um, I could certainly, you know, I could certainly see that. Um, actually, well, right. They, and the reason I bring it up is that I remember one time. This was like secondhand. You know, a, a, an officer told me that the other officer had told him um, where something like that happened, and uh, for no reason, out of the blue. And um, I, I want to say. I can't remember if he was either gangs. I want to say either gangs or homicide. One of the two. I can't remember what, but he was in a unit. And uh, all of a sudden, really weird things were happening in the house. And like, he had been living there while I was in an apartment. And he started having these really uh, dreams like, you know, I'm being chased, you know, as an officer. One of those like nightmares, for lack of a better word. And he was pulling his hair out because he was one of those typical... He ignored it up to a certain point, but then it got so that he said he had gotten to the point where he didn't even want to go home. He just didn't want to go home to face whatever was going on. Shadows. Uh, he'd be watching TV, shadows, stuff crashing in his kitchen, you know, out of sight, the nightmares. And um, th- and that's the problem sometimes with people that say that they don't believe it is asking for help because they kind of like run into like, Bottom line, to make a long story short, it turned out that apparently there was a criminal that he, for years, and and, and I want to, it leads me to believe, I think he was in the gang unit, 
where he, him and this guy, he had put this guy away a couple of times. The guy was a very bad gang member, really bad guy. But they had like a, a real hate-hate relationship going on for years. And I can't remember who was it. or Either he saw something or something that he comes to find out that the guy had died or been killed or he died in jail. And it coincided exactly around the time that he started having these things happen in his apartment. And it was like, he didn't want to believe it, but it was like this guy after death was trying to still even the score. Bottom line, he even though he got a blessing, he moved out of the apartment because he says in his head he couldn't handle that. That, you know, how could you fight against somebody that's not, is incorporeal. <laughs> There's nothing there. So yeah, and that's why I asked you that if you had come across that because sometimes it's like, um, sometimes those, uh, you know, how do you? I imagine as a police officer or law enforcement, that's that's a difficult one to grapple with. Yeah, well, it would be for sure. I mean, like I've heard of cases, and I've known uh, police officers where. Um, uh, the living have have done that, that you know yeah. for example uh gang unit members have to be careful uh because yes. you know if they're turning the heat on uh, a gang they can start to try and intimidate that police officer and uh, his family so i mean i yeah. know lots of police officers where uh, criminals would show up at the home and, and try and intimidate them and intimidate their family but yeah to have uh to take that even a step further and have something supernatural uh, follow you home where um we really don't have any control over that. Right. Even in uh, parapsychology, um, we still don't really understand exactly what human consciousness is um, or how it, how it operates uh, because it obviously operates outside the, the known realm of uh, physical science right now. Um, but, uh, you know, it's certainly possible that things can, can follow you home. I've dealt with it more, not from a law enforcement perspective, but... Um, we're actually working a case right now where a medium is trying to help somebody. And then all of a sudden now the medium is experiencing haunting characteristics that the client uh, that she was trying to help um, okay. was, was experiencing. And that's actually the second case that I've personally worked um, where, where this has happened. There was a, the case in Exeter actually um, where a medium was trying to help out and uh, whatever was uh, at, the, at the house in um, Exeter started to harass not only the medium that was helping out, but also her teenage son. So um, certainly that's a, that's a risk with the supernatural when you're involved in that type of work, for sure. Was it that a human or a non-human entity in that case? Did she know? Um, you know what? It was, uh, I call it borderline because I'm not even sure. I do have an interest okay. in, uh, in demonology um some things uh some things kind of led me to believe that it could have been dynamic uh the mm -hmm. things did happen in threes um and there were uh there were lots of signs you know that it could be a dynamic haunting uh but uh, Haley had actually seen the entity herself uh, manifest once before and uh, mm -hmm. it had like a pale gray face it's actually the book cover um, of the book so what we did is Haley drew it out after she had seen the entity um, it, you know it's a male very tall male with a pale moon pale gray face and uh, no eyes like they were just completely black so um, the uh, the family was really good friends with the uh, 
Catholic priest that actually was an exorcist. Uh, he's on some paranormal shows, uh, Father uh, Bob Bailey. Um, yes. But um, he uh, he said that if it's not a demon or it's not dynamic, then by description of that entity, it sounds like it's a damn soul, and the uh, church would treat it the same way that it would treat the dynamic. So mm -hmm. it was either somebody really, really, really hateful or it could have been dynamic but uh that's one that i still struggle struggle with i'm not a hundred percent sure but uh it was certainly a fascinating case and that was your first book the one that you wrote about the exeter the, the family that had and yes. can you tell me a little bit more about that i mean what what happened with that family yeah so uh how i got involved is um uh i met a girl on instagram and her, her photo kind of looked like Jillian Anderson from, from the X-Files. So I made a comment on it saying, hey, you look like uh, Jillian Anderson in this picture. And I got a private message and uh, she said, actually, I entered a competition with a magazine and I won the top 10 Jillian Anderson look like. And she kind of sent the screenshot of it. And so that was kind of cool. And so we got talking about X-Files and um, got talking about the paranormal. I told her, you know, I'm a police officer in Canada, but I used to investigate the paranormal. And you now I just kind of, do it uh, quietly kind of thing. Um, and then she told me that uh, she's actually been around spirits her, her whole life and that uh, everywhere she's been has been haunted. And uh, she said she was on the television show Ghost Hunters and I actually found the episode and um, the episode was exactly the same story she told me. And, you know, sounded like a really, really interesting person. So uh, I decided to fly down there and uh, meet her. And I stayed at a hotel and, we uh, traveled around Rhode Island for the weekend. She took me to a bunch of really cool paranormal sites. I got to see uh, the grave of uh, Mercy Brown, who's a vampire, uh, alleged right. vampire in uh, Exeter. Um, got to see the real Conjuring House uh, in Harrisville, Rhode Island. Um, got to see uh, the Devil's Footprint, which is in North Kingston. Uh, we actually had to find the GPS coordinates. Somebody luckily had logged it. Um, because it's off the main highway and kind of into the woods a little bit, but we actually did manage to find it, which was really cool. And then uh, the Deeker House in uh, Connecticut, uh, which right, uh, right. The, yeah. made the movie about uh, haunting in Connecticut. Haunting in Connecticut, yeah. right. Yeah, so I mean, uh, New England is just like Nova Scotia, where I'm from. Uh, it's got a very haunted history. There's all kinds of great sites and stories. So um, I decided to go back and see her again, and this time she invited me to stay at her house um but she warned me like you know whenever she has uh a boyfriend or a boy or anything over to the house that the activity seems to pick up so i didn't think too much of it because you know i'm a police officer and paranormal investigator but uh sure enough when i was there right off the bat uh you know you'd see doors open and close on their own uh lock and unlock on their own um, her children didn't sleep for three or four nights in a row uh, because they said they heard scratching on the bedroom wall. And uh, I went outside to make sure like tree branches weren't scraping against the window or it wasn't, uh, you know, a squirrel or something on the windowsill. But there was nothing. Um, you'd uh, start to experience like physical characteristics. You, you'd get really tired um, no matter how much you slept. Um, I didn't feel this part, but uh, Haley felt like she couldn't leave the house or she didn't want to leave the house and she kind of just wanted to isolate. Um, and uh, toys would be manipulated uh, strange hours in the morning. Um, 
you know, uh, you could hear the toys going off and uh, not doing the normal things that they're supposed to do. It would kind of cut itself off and just like strange, strange things. Um, then all of a sudden, like house flies, almost like in the movie uh, Amityville Horror, there was just like hundreds of these house flies that would just show up out of nowhere. Like the doors weren't left open, windows weren't left open. Um, we actually had to go to the store at one point to buy those fly strips and within like 30 really? seconds. That it was that bad, yeah. And within seconds, like thirty seconds, the entire strip would be full of house flies. Oh. Um, and uh, it got so bad one time that uh, we had to go to uh, one of the Catholic churches and get some some holy water. And so later that night, um, the fire alarm started to go off at like one thirty in the morning, and. They were the type of fire alarm that if one goes off, they all go off. And uh, it's mm -hmm. warning you that there's a fire in the house. So we checked the house first, obviously not thinking that it's paranormal, thinking that there's a fire. Uh, but there was nothing. And then uh, the alarms wouldn't shut off unless they got splashed with uh, holy water. And, and even then, only that one individual alarm would turn off, not the whole thing, even though they were connected. Um, so... The next uh, the next day, we contacted Kitty, which was the brand that made the uh, fire alarm, and they had no explanation for it, and basically sent out one or two free uh, fire alarms to try and reinstall. But uh, yeah, the house uh, I made multiple trips there uh, over a period of a year, and every time I went, there was always something um, that I that I would see or, or hear or or experience uh you know i also saw doorknobs turn on their own um, and i'd open it up and there'd be nobody on the other side uh, heard footsteps approach me in threes there was uh, three distinct footsteps um yeah just uh really it, it was definitely the most so haunted house i've ever heard did she ever what was the point of origin was it from the moment she moved in or did something just trigger it so with this case, uh, she's had three separate mediums, and not, she hasn't even sought them out. Uh, they always seem to contact her sister that has a message to pass along to her. Um, but she was told by three separate mediums that she has the ability to be a medium. Um, and she was very intuitive, uh, but uh, I guess she would have that skill set if she could develop it. So spirits are attracted to her and think that uh, they can communicate with her and that she can help them. So she's always been around spirits, no matter where she's at. Um, okay. It was in Cranston where she grew up. Then when she moved out on on her own, uh, every okay. apartment she was ever in was haunted. And then this new home, it was nothing to do with like the age of it. It was actually a fairly new home and a fairly new subdivision. Okay. Um, it's just the fact that these, you know, entities are are attracted to her. Okay, so it's one of those where the person is the haunted part. The person. Yes. And, because yeah, I, yes. I've been doing investigations since the 1990s, and uh, this was way, of course, be, before the you know the paranormal reality shows. And yes. it takes a while sometimes for when you start talking to people exactly about like when did this start, then they start telling you that basically they have a history, a personal history of phenomena going off around them, and it's like okay, it's not the house, it's you. Yeah, and sometimes you might move into a house, but really it's you. And like you said, sometimes they do have metamystic abilities, latent ones, or sometimes they do have an attachment that follows them around. It depends on what goes on with them. You know, sometimes people will see different things, and those are the ones that they don't have, they don't know how to put up boundaries so that the dead kind of like, hey, you you can't come in, uh, 
have a conversation with me in the middle of the night. Uh, so what happened at the end? What what happened? Uh, well, um, it got you know it got pretty scary towards the end. Uh, the young boy, um, five years old, started to, in my opinion, almost display some signs of uh, possession. Oh. Especially look, especially looking back at, um, you know, I, I took uh, Dr. Karen O'Keefe's course uh, from the School yes. of Parapsychology, Exorcism and Possession, and you know, looking at looking back at the case, I mean, he was certainly the. I think I personally think the early, you know, early stages of possession. He uh, he started to not want to clean himself, so he was you know fighting his mother to get into the, the shower, which was unusual. Uh, he was sleeping in later. Um, his behavior, uh, he started to uh, babble and almost talk in, um, uh, I guess, almost tongues uh, to. Uh, and and to he was five. He was five, yeah, and uh, oh he started. God. He started saying stuff that was like not age appropriate. Uh, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, like uh, we. Uh, it was funny. Uh, he had some blessed medallions, so his mom had some regular stuff on him, uh, like a cross right. or whatever that wasn't blessed. And then she put on uh, some blessed medallions because you know she was getting concerned. He could actually tell which ones were blessed and which one weren't, and he would uh, take the blessed ones, he'd rip them off, and say, "This is from the church," and he'd throw it across the the floor. And like he didn't go to church; like the family was Catholic, but they weren't like I guess practicing Catholic. Right. Um, and then uh, you know I, I I did some religious uh, provocation. Um, which is when you know you use religious objects or mm -hmm. scripture uh, to kind of invoke a response, and um, I was trying to get him to say uh, that uh, he was Jesus, and so was his mother, and he couldn't say it. He he absolutely refused, um, and then he told me that I was gay. And again, this is a five-year-old, uh, you know, like uh, right. totally uncharacteristic. He told me that I was gay for loving Jesus, and. Um, just like crazy, crazy stuff. So right, that a five-year-old is—that's not a five-year-old mentality. No, and he was like uh, hissing. He he began like hissing like a snake, which is also uh, you know snake yeah. is representative of, of Satan and the dynamic. Um, and uh, spitting at us and just like just crazy, crazy stuff that was totally out of characteristic. And uh, so we called the family priest again. Uh, Father Bob Bailey, but unfortunately he uh, wasn't doing deliverance work at that time. Um, so we ended up in a resort to a medium that we knew and trusted. And uh, she came in, she was non-denominational. So she had her sage and her herbs and mm -hmm. um, put them in a pie plate and lit them and, you know, started saying her prayers. And then we got up to the master bedroom and um, in between Haley and I, so there was uh, Heather was by the window and then there was a bed uh, and then uh, we were on the other side of the bed. So the bed was separating the medium and Haley and I. And um, we all of a sudden, Haley and I could feel like this cold spot in between us. And I, at the time, I had the FLIR, a thermal camera. So I pointed it at the cold spot and nothing showed up. It wasn't unusual um, uh, or anything unusual on the screen. But uh, that's actually common, like in the paranormal. Uh, people report hot spots or cold spots, but the equipment doesn't pick it up. So we mentioned that to uh, the psychic and said uh, you know, that uh, we feel a cold spot. And uh, the psychic started to call the entity over towards her. And all of a sudden on the bed, <clears throat> we had the fleur uh, pointed at it. In the middle of the bed, you can see the pie plate, and it's red hot because it's on, you know, 
on fire and smoking. Um, but all of a sudden, you can see these distorted footprints start to walk across the uh, comforter as the psychic's calling the entity towards her. And then uh, she said, I feel like the entity's near me or towards me. And uh, we never told her what we were seeing on the floor. Oh, so, so she, if you were, you had the fleer, you were looking at her across the other side from her so she couldn't see. Okay. Yeah, she had no idea any of this was taking place. And uh, so all of a sudden, when the footprints go over to her, she says uh, that um, she can uh, uh, feel that the entity's over, over by her. So uh, she said some more prayer, non denominational prayers. I know she did say uh, Michael the Archangel uh, prayer. And then uh, all of a sudden, she said that she felt like the entity uh, had had gone and Haley and I looked at each other and said, well, we don't feel any different and we didn't notice or hear anything. And she said, well, it's not like the movies, like the windows don't blow out and the roof doesn't come off. And right, exactly. Papers aren't swirling in the air. That's a Hollywood version in other words. Yeah. And, uh, and she said, uh, well, all I can tell you is that I feel like the entity's departed. And uh, sure enough on the floor, the, uh, the footprints had on the bed cover had disappeared. So, um, it was, uh, you know, that was really interesting. And then after that happened, um, there's been no activity at the house uh, ever since. And that was uh, November of 2018, I believe. And is this, was this the medium that you said that afterwards started having her own things going on for her at her house? Uh, no, that wasn't that medium, but it was, uh, it was one. Of, so there was three mediums uh, that were involved in this case. Uh yeah, uh, that was one of them. Uh, there was another one that was an Arabic fella, and um, he, uh, his, her sister had gone to see him, and he had passed him. He said, "I have a, a message to pass along to your sister." And she said, "Okay," and um, she said to tell her that she's got a jinn attached to her, and that this jinn um, doesn't like uh, other male figures around her, and that he'll make their life a living hell. And uh, part became important later on because um, when I was finding out the history of everything she'd been through, uh -huh. um, there was one day uh, I was at work actually. And uh, so in the morning, her daughter would go to school and her son uh, went to pre-primary. So you could either send him in the morning or the afternoon. So she would send him in the afternoon. And uh, her morning routine is to go downstairs, check the cats, and make sure they have water and food. And she, what, this one day, she left her phone um, on the kitchen counter. And so when she, her and uh, her son came upstairs, um, she saw that the phone was lit up. And um, she thought maybe I had texted her. But when she looked at it, it said somebody had spoken into Surrey, and it said, uh, hey, Surrey, uh, Malik, dirty girl. And then the response said, in my realm, uh, anyone can be anything. And so she took a screenshot of it, sent it to me, and I said, okay, that's really strange, right? So um, I said, maybe maybe it was the spirit that's been bugging you that kind of, you know, gave maybe he gave you his name, like Malik's name or whatnot. And um, I checked the, uh, the uh, Roman Catholic Bible, and I couldn't find anything in there about uh, Malik, and I checked a few uh, demon dictionaries and couldn't find really okay. anything about Malik. But... Um, somehow I ended up piecing it together um, because uh, because of, but she told me that it, maybe it's not a demon, it was a jinn, which is also, it can be an angel or a demon. Because uh, right, in, right. in the Quran, uh, jinns are either good or bad, and they can be angels or demons, basically, if you translate it over to Christianity. 
so started doing some research and actually found out that Malik um, is in the Quran and he's uh, this demon that's in charge of 12 other demons in hell. And Malik's job is to like turn the, the heat up in, in hell and kind of torture souls. So we find this out and then that same morning, about an hour or so later, um, Haley's little boy brings her a drawing and it's uh, a stick figure with like these blue swirls around it. So she's... Uh, She's kind of like, oh, what's this picture of? And that's really cute. And uh, his response was, oh, that's the little boy that likes to play in the fire in my toy room. And so I found that was interesting because we had just read about Malik that likes to crank the fire up in hell. And now it's an hour later. Um, yeah. And and uh, he, he wasn't present for our conversation either. So it wasn't like something kind of subliminal that was put into his mind. Um so he brings this picture. So then the third thing that happened that day, which again, I find interesting because like it's said, the dynamic usually operate in threes um, is uh, when it was time to get his clothes for school. And she went upstairs, she kept a statue of the Virgin Mary on the kid's armoire. And uh, it, it was found face down on the floor and uh, it never moves from off there. Uh, now that one, I, I kind of put less weight into because I mean, obviously it's possible the kid's, bumped into it and knocked it over right uh, but the the message on the uh, going back to the message on the iphone so we had tested uh three other iphones at the time and apple um had no explanation for why the ios software had given the response that was on haley's phone because the proper response is um when you say when you said that at the time uh hey siri malik dirty girl the proper response should have been I just don't understand this gender thing. That's what the iOS software was programmed to respond. Um, so Apple had no explanation for why <laughs> the other I've response uh, came on. So between that and the drawing from from the boy, I mean, I, I put more weight into that than you know finding the statue kind of knocked over. But uh, that's uh, you know that's. Did that's anything happen I'm... to the daughter at all, or was it, or was the target the kid? The boy. Uh, the the boy the boy was a, a big target towards the end, but actually the the first part when I when I first met the family, um, it was more targeting the daughter actually. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, she had uh, there was one morning she woke up. I took a photo of it, and uh, I don't think uh, we might have used it in the book. I can't remember. Uh, we were we tried to protect the identities of the kids as best we could. Mm -hmm. So. Um, it may be in the book, but, uh, if not, I, in the, in the file that I have, I, I took a photo of her eyes because like she hadn't slept for three or four days. She just had like these terrible, like red bags underneath her eyes. Like you could tell this poor kid was just exhausted, right. but there was something that was keeping her up for, for those three days. So when, when that medium did that last intervention, that's it, it, everything, how, what happened to the boy, all that behavior. All good. Yeah, yeah. Um, short, shortly after that happened, and and they weren't there for that either. So uh, the grandparents, um, the grandparents uh, took uh, the two kids for the night. Well, um, Haley and myself and the medium dealt with the situation. So, um, yeah. Uh, once that happened, uh, he came back home, and uh, he was back to normal, just a happy, happy little kid. What a relief. I'm telling you because well, when it comes to kids, it's like all bets are off. Yeah, I know for sure. I mean, that's the funny thing too with the 
I mean, with the dynamic, I mean, they don't, uh, they don't care, but uh, even in, in policing, like uh, the criminals, the hard criminals that are in jail, like that's one thing that's off limits. Like you just don't touch kids and uh, you know. Right, exactly. And, and you know what, that thing that you said about him knowing which metals were blessed or not, I've heard of exorcisms where, uh, you know, people, sometimes the truth is, you know, you'll have people that claim they're possessed and it's just mental illness, severe mental illness. But anyway, one of the things that they find is they'll put like regular water on them and the person doesn't react, but then they use blessed water or holy water and it they, then they react in pain. And there's no way that that person would know because water is water, in other words. Yeah. There's no way for them to know which yep. has been blessed and which hasn't. Yeah, and they exactly. That that's not, like it's a litmus like test to say, or, is this real? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not like yeah, like you said, it's not like it's colored or marked or anything like that. Like if you got sprayed with water and somebody's telling you that it's blessed, I mean, you would assume that it's blessed. Right, exactly. You know, if you have a priest or somebody that's in a let's say a part of the exorcism team is throwing water on you, let's say the person, even if they're crazy, is going to assume that the water is going to be blessed. Yeah. But when they yeah. don't react, but then you use the real one. That's like that's your first tip. That yeah, you are really dealing with some type of you know something's going on with that person on the supernatural end of it and um yeah yeah when you mentioned that thing about that medium i read uh one time there's a psychiatrist his name is dr gallagher and um oh, yes, yeah. you've heard of dr gallagher that he works with yes, the yeah, he, and everything yeah he, yeah he's a he's a psychiatrist but uh he's right. uh, he's got a real fascination with the dynamic and uh yeah right, right, right. He, 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 he kind of went into it you could tell that he says he kind of went into it thinking he, he he never had a a proclivity to think but he says that after he witnessed certain events like he said that there's just no way this person could know what what happened was happening but i don't one time he was telling the story this was another psychiatrist and um it was uh, a team you know a man and a woman and they were treating this uh lady that she apparently she had gone through all types of therapies nothing was working she was really troubled so they start working with her and after a few months they stopped because they said we're not making any headway come to find out after the fact it's incredible they both describe that unknown to the other they they started having at their houses things fall off shelves, noises, and they would get splitting headaches. Both of them were having the same experiences at their houses outside of the time that they were working with his patient. And they never shared that. I guess most each one of thought was at the beginning it was a random and then after a while where they saw a pattern, but they it was like like what you said, I'm not gonna talk about this because I'm supposed to be a medical professional who doesn't believe in the supernatural yeah yeah actually i just heard uh dr gallagher on a, a friend of mine uh friend of mine's podcast and um uh, it was interesting because uh i think the question came up what do uh, other psychiatrists think of your interest in the the dynamic and he's he's kind of like me now uh but he said um that he doesn't you know sure he gets some ridicule and stuff like that but uh, he doesn't care and and, right. Uh, you, you could tell he's the work that he's done. He's he's a believer in it for sure. So it's it's it works fast. Right, but, but the thing is that when you um, 
in other words, he's not ready to just everything is is a is a case of possession for him. Basically, he's part of that team to basically identify. No, this person is not possessed. This person yep. just needs mental health treatment or you know some type of med you know drug uh, intervention. You know, yeah. but uh, yeah, some of the things that he's described through the years because he's been doing that for quite some time. This is very convincing, by the way. It's very convincing when you read about uh what he's witnessed and he says like um that in some cases he's had uh patients patient slash possession uh subjects know things about him personally yeah that he says, there's no way this person knew would know anything about me at all period much less things that were going on personally for me in my family or in my personal life yeah, and that's that's one of the signs of uh, you know a person that's possessed is they have that foreknowledge right. or the future knowledge. Uh, they're able to tell things that they shouldn't know. So yeah, that's really right. Very. I mean, <laughs> let me tell you something. When you read those stories coming from somebody like him, it's more um, it's more it's it, it really it, it's like if you ever have any any doubt in you, like how much of that is real? Yeah. It'll make a believer out of you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You got to check his work out for sure if you're not familiar with him. Yes. I think he came out with a book a couple of years ago. I want to say one of his last books came out a couple of years ago. So let me ask you now, the second book that you brought out, um, and, and I want to say um, when you, and I know you were law enforcement yourself, um, what do you feel is... Because I know a lot of people will have first-hand experiences and they still have it, but they still become doubters. What have you found with some of the people that you uh, interviewed for the second book? What's happened to them after they have a paranormal experience? Uh, some of them uh, are certainly believers for sure. Um, I'm trying to think of the, the skeptical ones. Uh, I, think, I think in the second book I noticed, although they were skeptical, they, they still believe that the incident that they experienced was was supernatural. Um, there wasn't any. Uh, I don't think in the second book there was anyone that was like absolutely adamant that you know they're not sure what that was kind of thing. Whereas in the first book there was a couple of stories that people weren't sure. And let me ask you something, Elliot. Uh, this there's a book, and unfortunately I, I lost my copy of it. You know, one of those things that you could kick yourself because it came out in the 1980s. Oh no. And. Um, and, and I found that randomly, and then it was a great book, and then later on you realized how good of a book it was because it dealt with police officers coming on crime scenes with occult symbolism and not realizing what it was. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, they're looking at all the clues, but they don't realize that some of the things that are there are basically pointing at uh, yeah. some type of uh, occult or cultish if you want to call it motivators that you know that a lot of that stuff is symbolic yeah did you ever come across any of that when you when you worked in the police department no uh you know what uh, i can say i i never had like an occult type murder or anything like that um i think even 
even like the closest thing I could even think of is uh, I, I investigated a break and enter one time uh, where the mm-hmm. where the guy had set set it up uh, to hire two kids, two teenage kids, of course, uh, to go break into his mother's house and steal a bunch of jewelry because he didn't get along with his mother. And uh, I was able to get uh, information through a, a confidential source or a human source. Mm-hmm or uh, informant, or I guess it's the bad guys like to call it a snitch. But um, I was able to get information on who did it. And, uh, of course, I ripped the two kids in for an interview first. And, of course, they admit to everything, right, because they're scared. Uh, and they put up this guy to it. And, and this guy, um, he uh, I could picture him being involved in, uh, in the occult. We didn't find anything in his house when we did a warrant except for stolen property. But uh, he wore, he wore like a those kind of like rings like uh you know almost like a devil worshiper type mm-hmm. ring right i uh, had like the black the black coat uh in his house he had like strange knives uh you know almost like they almost look like ceremonial type knives but there okay. was nothing like completely blatant like uh, any sort of literature books and uh statues or anything right. like that but um yeah those uh i know california gets quite a quite a bit of those right right and and, and the way the the book was really interesting because basically he he was the 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 author was trying to say that they needed to train police departments better to recognize certain things because in other words it's not like every time every crime you got to has got black candles and a dead animal you know like hey that's pretty that they were more subtle symbol symbology sometimes mostly he said most nine times out of ten they're a murder uh some type of murder scene he says where they leave certain types of symbols or something there that if you know what you're looking at, you realize as far as if you're trying to find who the perpetrator is, is, but if you don't know what you're seeing, you overlook it. And yeah. especially if it's a stranger on stranger crime, because sometimes those are, you know, there's not like that you could say, well, it's the husband or the friend or the neighbor, you know, the, that you, there's a connection and, you know, sometimes you can follow it back. But when there's it's a stranger on stranger, um, there's just no. And I'm going to give you a, an example of this happened. I want to say it's maybe less than 10 years ago in Miami. And uh, they, have, um, they have a bay off Miami, Biscayne Bay. They found... Um, a dismembered, a young man dismembered. Okay. Yeah. Um, in a bag. They threw him in the bay. Okay. Father, his, his brother came and identified him, etc. Turns out this guy was a day laborer. And that really no no enemies. He was a young guy, he was like in his early 20s, day laborer, didn't have any enemies. Um, and what happened was it was like a Friday night. And he went drinking with his brother and then went to some places and unfortunately drank too much. And his brother says, hey, I'm leaving. And he goes, oh, you know, I'm going to leave later. His brother leaves and he staggers out, okay, of the bar. And apparently, you know, it's like two or three in the morning. The streets are empty. Yeah. But he says that they remember seeing him. In other words, uh they remember seeing somebody said that they saw him being put into i, I can't remember if it was a trunk or the back seat of like a, a older model honda okay and they drive away with him and then the next thing you know is he's found 
dismembered in the bay. And the, what the, the point that they were saying is if it was robbery, all they had to do, he was so drunk that they could have gone through his pockets and robbed him. You know, you didn't have to take him anywhere. But they were saying that most probably this guy was used as a sacrifice, okay? Uh, because he was he was found within less than a week. You know, in other words, when he was taken, he was, um, they killed him like right away. Uh, and that's why I'm saying that a lot of times, um, you know, in other words, this was not a mob hit. This wasn't like a guy, you know, who's like, oh, you know, he's in organized crime and they were trying to make an example. Yeah, one of these convoluted things that you can say, okay, this was a guy who's a day laborer, gets too drunk, young, good-looking guy. Two guys hustle him into a car, drive off with him. The next thing you know, he shows up in a bag floating in the bay. And that's yeah. my point as far as some of these stranger-on-stranger stranger crimes that it's so difficult that unless you know what you're looking for, if you find the crime scene, that, um, that yeah, some, that, I think that's fascinating because I think sometimes not, that's coming to light more you know, besides the obvious stuff, like you said, that, oh, you find paraphernalia, you know, like, you know, you go to the perpetrator and he's got books and he's got, you know, all this maybe satanic, uh, you know, stuff, you know, and you can say, okay, well, there, there, that's, that's the, maybe he's trying to do something along those lines. But uh, I was wondering, because I, I, I always think that I've heard some stories of people saying after the fact, yeah, I remember going to some place and there was some weird stuff like, there was a cow tongue nailed to the door, you know, or the wall, things like that. Really weird stuff like that. Like, um, yeah, yeah, no, that's a that's a really good point for sure. Um, yeah, it's uh, and, unfortunately. And of course, there's I, I, a, can see, I can see how cases go cold because um, mm -hmm. luck, luckily in my career when I was on homicide, uh, we uh, there was one case. There was one case for sure that we, we knew who did it, but we didn't have enough to lay charges. But other than that, most of the cases were solved. Um, but there was one case where I call it a circle. Um, and so what happens is like when there's a homicide, you start with the body, you got to find out who it is, and then you got to work backwards. Where was this person at? Who was this person with? Who's this person's friends, associates? And you kind of work way backwards. And then there's kind of a circle. So you start interviewing everyone, like family, friends, associates. Uh, maybe he was found outside of a business. So you interview the business uh, owner and the employees and things like that. But eventually you start to come full circle where they're like, talk to so-and-so oh we already talked to so-and-so or talk to jane doe oh we haven't talked to jane doe so then you go talk to jane doe but eventually you come to the part where you've talked to everyone so everyone's saying oh i don't know you might want to talk to this person well please already talk to this person so eventually you run out but normally at the end of that circle uh your case is done you you know who the suspect mm -hmm. is and you've got everything that you need but in a whodunit case where you don't know who did it um once you empty that circle, like you got nowhere to go. So I can see how easy it is for a case to go cold and, and you not have very much solving it. Luckily in the case that I worked, um, DNA solved it. So we did finish that circle. There was no one else to talk to. We had all the video surveillance from downtown. We had nothing, but luckily for us, um, they found, uh, DNA on the uh, victim's body and six months okay. later once the lab analyzed some items that we had sent from the crime scene uh, to the lab uh, 
the offender's DNA was on the databank, so they were able to make a link of the offender to the victim, and we picked him up, and he confessed to it, and now he's in jail. So uh, we were very lucky in that case, but it's kind of scary as a homicide detective when you reach that point because when you have nowhere else to go to get your information, uh, it's pretty scary because you're you're left with that, that cold case, and no one wants to be the guy that's working that cold case. Right. Well, the DNA, God, it's, it's solving. I know some cold cases have finally found resolution because of DNA that there's a match eventually, even though it happened years before, if they kept some type of evidence, if it could be used. And yes, uh, let me yep. ask you, just like those people that don't have enemies, I imagine, what about those people that have a lot of enemies? It's like, okay, who's the sus? Who would have a motive to kill this person? Well, you've got thousands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, there are some some people that are just so entrenched in the, the criminal underworld that right, uh, exactly. Yeah, if they got killed, there'd probably be a hundred suspects because everyone wants to to take yeah. him out. So yeah, like who'd want to do away with this guy? Well, oh, okay, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he double crossed a lot of people, or he did a lot of bad things, and uh, yeah, that that people don't realize that sometimes, um, and and I'm glad you 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 know. Because sometimes, um, you know, you always hear about some of these hauntings that are tied to, you know, the violent death or the no um, no justice for the victim. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, where it's almost like that's what they're waiting for or that nobody knows what, what became of them. You know, they do away with somebody and uh, nobody ever knows. You know that somebody did away with them they yep. just drop off the face of the earth and that sometimes is the trigger for for an intelligent haunting because they want to let somebody know hey this is what happened and this is who did it to me and um that's i tell people sometimes you know when you get you know these hauntings that are either a piece of land or like you said or you'll get a structure there brand new apartment building house or whatever and they have start having all these um things i go you never know who might have been buried out there in the dead of night a few years ago, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. that they got rid of. Yeah, that's true. And uh, that's the thing, too. Like, even if you uh, do research on a property and you're not getting anything from local records, it doesn't mean that something didn't happen there. Um, you know, especially in early days, uh, record oh, yeah. wasn't exactly, you know, the best. So you could always you could do research on the property. There's nothing there, but something could have happened that you just don't know about. Right. Well, there was uh, in Texas, the place was called uh, God Black Oaks. Oaks. I can't remember. But right after American Civil War, like around the turn of the century, they there was a black community and it had a cemetery. There was a big fire in the town, and basically everybody moved away. And of course, this cemetery was an unofficial cemetery. In other words, it wasn't ever put into the county records. It was just part of the community where they're burying the dead. And years pass, a developer buys the land, unknowing themselves. It's not like it's not like that movie uh, Poltergeist where the developer knowingly builds yeah. up the graveyard. They have no idea that this graveyard was there to begin with, because of course, a, a lot of those monuments back then were made of wood. And they, they they decay and they disappear. They, um, and then it was uh, it was one of these developments where people paid to have like a customized home on a piece of land, 
and it was in an area and soon enough people started to experience hauntings and the how they they started having things happening and they were everybody was like what's going on this is a brand new house and how they came to find out was one of them after the fact after they had moved in was digging a pool oh yes in, in their backyard and they came up and they brought up two coffins two wooden coffins wow. and um I believe they were able to identify because they still had the rings. You know, people would get buried with their rings and their jewelry on. And it was a couple that had been buried, like, I want to say 1910, 1905, something like that. Because this happened in the 70s in Texas. It was like, and that's how they started to unravel what had been in this piece of land previously. Wow. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. I, uh, and they, uh, almost, they almost sounds like the plot line to uh, Poltergeist. Well, and then what um, what ended up happening is these homeowners are trying to get their money back. You know, basically, like, I want to move out of here because I wouldn't have bought this house or this piece of land if I would have known I'm, it's being buried. But um, yeah, they, got, they got caught in one of these back and forward things. And um, they're being told you can't, uh, in, in other words, to provide proof, but you can't dig up because it was it was one of those things where the log catches you on a back and forth. You need proof, but they don't allow you to do what you need to get to proof. And one of the family, the one of the main ones, um, they decided we're going to dig ourselves. And one time the mother and the daughter, and they're digging. They're trying to find more proof. And the mom says she starts getting like really like Like all of a sudden I'm really tired. Like, oh, my God. She sits down and her daughter, who's like 30, 31 years old, starts digging in the place, doing the work. All of a sudden she collapses, make a long story short. She dies. She has a heart attack. She died. The um the family, the parents, they 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 basically they they gave the they gave the, the house back to the bank. Like they couldn't win in the in a and they moved away. But all the families, God, I could kick myself for not remembering the name of that place. Uh, and they wrote a book about it later on. But everybody in that area had some type of experience. And it was because they all had, you know, basically built. Um, and she says that one of the times she says that they had a, a very old oak tree in the backyard. And something was carved into it with an arrow pointing down. She says that they couldn't figure out, you know, all right, you know, somebody carved an arrow pointing down and they were like, okay, whatever. Turns out that basically it was like a marker, you know, in the middle of the cemetery that somebody, you know, was just pointing down as in so-and-so is buried here, but there was nothing there. And at the time they saw it, they just, they, they couldn't put two and two together until much I'll later. Do, uh, I'll have to do some research on this um, because, uh, I mean, you always hear, you always hear so many different uh stories but uh, this one sounds really fascinating and some of the older stories that i just love digging into so i'll have to definitely do some research on that yeah it's and and um and this was uh, by the way when this happened you know because i now remember it was the black hope cemetery that's it there we go i hate it when black i can't hope remember black okay. hope cemetery in texas and this by the way this happened prior to poltergeist because i know there's people that are say oh you know what they ran with the idea of the poltergeist movie you know where the you know the people are buried and this happened prior to that 
and, and basically everybody, I think it was like eight homeowners that had built in this parcel all ended up moving away. All of them, none of them could stay. Wow. Very, very interesting and very sad what happened to the one family that wrote the book about their daughter collapsing and dying. Uh, by the time she reached the hospital, she was dead. She had had like this major heart attack, something that she was pronounced when she got to the hospital. Uh, and by the way, she didn't have, there was no, uh, she didn't have any health problems. That you know what? Of, you exerted yourself were, too much. When you were telling that story, um, I just gave it a, a super quick Google here. When you were telling that story, I guess like, I know, like I almost, I felt like I had ESP or premonition that you were going to tell me that the daughter took a heart attack. And I'm like, my God, it's like either I'm having deja vu or that sounds familiar, but Unsolved Mysteries did an episode on this. Really? And uh, yes, and I remember, I remember it. You know, yeah. Um, I'll definitely have to do, because I would have been a kid when I saw that. So, uh, well, let me tell you, there's much more than what they publicize. So if you read and you go into, there's yeah. a lot of details, like most of these things, but sometimes they compress these into shows like to a half hour or a one hour um, thing. And there's, uh, in other words, the duration of what happened and how it happened and the aftermath for these families. I'll have to do some research on it for sure. It's like very, very, very interesting. That getting back to the original point, which what I was saying that sometimes where you see land, like how did it happen? Sometimes it's not a cemetery. Sometimes it's been a dumping ground for bodies. You know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. You know? Uh, I mean, uh, I think that's why a lot of uh, sanitariums and and institutions oh, yeah. uh, are haunted because if you actually look at the history of it, like the the patients were treated almost like prisoners and they were beaten yes. and they were made to do slave labor. Um, you know, some of them ran uh, crops like they had to like pick fruit, and pick vegetables and sell, they'd sell mm -hmm. it to help fund the hospital. And, and uh, when they died, a lot of them would just toss them in the ground. Um, you know, well, what people don't realize, a lot of people don't know about graves. it. It's yeah. even worse than that. They said, yeah. not everybody, but I want to say 90%, like you said, of these patients when they died, you know, they usually had a cemetery, you know, like a, a hospital cemetery. Some did, yeah. Yeah, you're right. The majority yeah. of the families never came to claim the bodies. No. But post, because those big giant asylums came around, like after, at least in the United States, after the Civil War. And like you said, they, it wasn't like that you have the state funding. Now It was like they had like working farms. That's the only way they could keep it going. And what they would do, this was around the time that they needed bodies for the anatomy classes. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of the patients that ended up dying there, their bodies were given over to these different universities, to their anatomy classes, because there was no family to come and say, hey, where's my father, where's my mother, my brother, my uncle, my kid? Because the families by that time, they they were, especially if the person was very, you know, very um, violent or, or their mental illness was really difficult to control. Yeah. They come, like, they weren't visiting. So a lot of no. these, believe it or not, a lot of these asylums would turn around and sell these bodies wow. uh, for use, knowing that no family member was going to come and take it. Nobody was yeah, going to come and I find could, out what did you do with that body. I could yeah. totally see that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yes. like you said, uh, it's really sad, but some people would just uh, drop their kid off 
that hospital. Yeah. Go, Let's see you later. Never see them again. Yes, yes. It's and, and everybody was put in there together. People don't realize that it wasn't just the mentally ill. If you were indigent, you know, if you had fallen on hard times, uh, everybody was lumped in there together. Yeah, and they, they, horrific they thing senior, happened. They, they put senior citizens in there. If people couldn't afford uh, to put them in proper guest homes, they dropped them off at the asylum. Just yes. Like, see you later. Yes. Yeah. Yes. There was. It was when you look at, it, especially when when you look at it from the modern day perspective, some of these things. And and I want to say, unfortunately, um, because of the nature of the work, they were short staffed. And then let's face it, they didn't look hard at who they hired <laughs> because they were just so desperate to get sometimes, you know, people to work there, uh, that, um, that's when you start hearing, but even amongst themselves, there was a lot of violence among the, uh, the, the, the people that were, you know, that were, were not so violent that they had to be kept like, like in the padded room that were basically yeah. left. They were very violent amongst themselves. And it's uh, but yeah, again, when there's nobody there to, to be your advocate as in a family member or friend, a lot of those bodies ended up being uh, given over or sold. I take, I take that back, sold over because there was always a, a profit in the process uh, to uh, universities for the medical schools. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I didn't know or I didn't consider that part, but I mean, it makes total yeah. sense. Yeah, of yeah. course. And you know, not everybody that died or some people, you know, they had all the different ages different sexes, you know, whatever it was that these um, universities needed. And the thing is, people don't realize the uh, back then it wasn't like that you could keep, uh, the, uh, in other words, these uh, corpses would decompose really quick. They needed a lot, in other words. I mean, I understand the thought why they wanted it. I, Do you see what I'm saying? But it's different yeah. if, when it's somebody that says, okay, use my body <laughs> versus yeah uh, no for sure yeah i mean like some people donate their body to, to science yeah. but uh, obviously these these poor souls didn't have a choice no 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 they were they were it uh there was a profit to be made and it's like nobody's gonna come and say hey that little and, and if you go to some of these cemeteries at these asylums um all they even have is just a little slab with like a number you know if you can find the marker you know yeah. it's, it's, yeah. uh, very deep, no personalization, nothing like that of that nature. But yeah, absolutely. Asylums, especially those old ones, it's like, it's not if it's haunted, it's like how bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, they are. Elliot, I want to thank you so much. It has been wonderful to speak to you. Just uh, for my podcast listeners, what is the website that they can find um, you at? You know what? The best website to, to find anything out about myself or paranormal phenomena research investigation is ppri.net. That stands for okay. paranormal phenomena research investigation.net. Um, okay. It's got my biography on there. It's got a, a store section, which will give you a list to Amazon or chapters or Burns and Noble, where you can find my books at. Uh, it's got some parapsychological articles on there. Um, just a uh, very good resource. Uh, so ppri.net. And you said next month, as in October, is when your book is being released? Yeah, I'm hoping towards the end of October. Uh, it's just at the editor right now uh, being edited, but I'm um, hoping for the end of October. And uh, that's, that one will be called More Supernatural Encounters from Law Enforcement. And again, it'll, uh, excuse me, it'll be available on uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble's website, and uh, if you're in Canada, Chapters Indigo Cole's website. Excellent. I, I will put a link to your website on the credits of the show. 
And again, I want to thank you. Yeah, it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. And I hope you'll come back and uh, we can talk about more of your stories because they're fascinating. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And uh, uh, thank you for having me. I uh, enjoyed doing this. On the contrary. It was my pleasure. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. So guys, wasn't it an interesting conversation? God. Now, see, I want to bring him back so we could fill us in on the other stories. You know, because uh, the truth is that, you know, a lot of times, uh, and I've said this before, a lot of these uh, people, as a matter of fact, they're trained observers, they... um, they're silenced and with good reason. I do the same thing. You know, if you think that your, your job or your chances of promotion or, I mean, one thing is to say, Hey, did you see that was a weird stuff? Ah, yeah. Okay. And it, but if you keep on digging into it or you keep on like becoming known as that person after a while, it can follow you around. And uh, even now, even now, even though paranormal research and all that has become more mainstream, um, it will be a career killer. And nobody's going to come unless you have a really good boss and tell you, hey, but uh, if he becomes, how can I tell you, uh, known that you're that person who's into that weird shit, believe it or not, people remember then if there's any talk about promotions or you'd be surprised people that will come up, that will come up. People say, no, I go, yeah, that comes up. And sometimes if it's down to you and um, another person being considered, guess what? That might be the one thing that is um, sways the balance in favor of your rival for promotion, for this, for that. I mean, for a million things. And um, I've, I've, I've heard that, that some version of that, from people across the board, cops, 911, fire chiefs, pilots, um, something where especially, especially where what you do is you're supposed to be very fact-based, rational. In other words, something, somebody that the job description demands that you have a really, really, really good grip on reality. Okay, because they don't want anybody. And, and you might think, well, just because you believe in something, to them, it will it it will have a whiff of how how much of how much of a grip do you have in reality? You know, because if something ever goes south with you, as in that person, somebody will bring up and go, "See, why did you give that guy that promotion? Or why did you give that person? See, he was weird. He was always walking around talking about ghosts and stuff." And see, nobody wants to be the one. <laughs> That gave the okay for that promotion or for that assignment, whatever the case might be. So, yeah, I've spoken to innumerable people, uh, God, that say, uh, yeah, I've seen this. I've heard that once a lot of times. Um, I've arrived, we've arrived at accident scenes like that one that I said about the 911 calls, um, things at the police station. And everybody just uh, sees it, yeah, yeah, but that, that's it. It's like, let's not talk about that anymore. Because 
of the stigma that's attached to it. And um, it, and, and again, and it, it's really funny because sometimes the ones that say the most, they, they don't believe in it, the ones that are the most scared of it. It's almost like by saying, if I say enough that I don't believe in it, then I'm going to be off the, uh, if I don't believe in it, it's not real. It's not going to happen. It's like their, their, their denial is going to save them from um, either witnessing it or anything like that. It's like, this is my talisman. My disbelief will protect me. Yeah. Yes. That happens quite a lot, quite a lot. And, um, there's a, I mean, there, even in that, um, that one that I said the story about where the, um, the dispatcher was found outside one night, you know, dispatching from outside on a, one of those handheld radios because at night it was a lot slower. She could do that. It wasn't like, it was because the uh, station was built in the 1940s and it used to have one of those really old cells, you know, like those heavy metal clank, clank. like in other words, if you, I went there, uh, I went to the, I, I investigated it. And um, if you go, if you went back there, it had a, those old fashioned cells that are heavy metal and you do anything and you open that door and you hear, clank, clank, ah, it made a bunch of noise. And since that station was on the small side, it wasn't like this thing. This was like a holding cell. And whoever was there at night, sometimes there was occasions where they would hear clanking in that cell back there. It was like a room and then inside the room was that cell. And they would hear the clanking of either the door opening or closing or somebody in there. And there was nothing in there for it to clank unless there was somebody, but there wasn't anybody. Okay. And, and by the way, the noise was unmistakable. It was nothing else in that building or in that office or in that area that sounded like that. It was a very distinctive noise. All right. And now as to who it was, they really had, to, you know, I asked, do you know, did you ever have any uh, prisoner commit suicide? Anything happen in here or maybe fights between two people? Nothing nothing that they knew of, you know, I mean, but it was like, there was nothing there that as far as nothing that they could say this, uh, this event happened in there. And maybe it's either a residual, maybe something that is just playing out or yeah, this really horrific. It was a murder or somebody hung himself or two guys had it out, you know, nothing, nothing that that could be pinned as to who was in there, uh, making all that noise inside the jail cell of all things. So let me tell you something. Um, things like that make you realize that uh, there's a lot of stuff out there um, that sometimes, like I said, you know, you could try to explain it, and sometimes you'll never have an adequate explanation. Why do some places become haunted, others not? Why do some spirits haunt and others not? You know, why why do some deceased go on their way and make it to the other side and that's it. Uh, and others don't, you know, some people say religious beliefs, lack of religious beliefs, fear of hell, um, the need for vengeance, the need for somebody knowing maybe what happened to them. Um, you also have uh, people that are very materialistic. They, they want to basically keep, 
they're very tied to the earth plane i guess is how i'm trying to say it of what they have because that's the kind of person they were in life and they just it's like that part of moving on is that you got to let go of all that stuff and they can't i mean but why some and why others and things of that nature a lot of interesting questions but anyway guys i want to thank you for being part of my audience um again i just released my book it's out on amazon right now if you look up uh hot dame on a cold slab film noir murders number two you will find it there uh in amazon under marlene pardo pelliser again um I told everybody that between now and October 31st Halloween anybody that signs up to my newsletter that you can do by going to my website marlenepardo.com or miamigoschronicles.com I will send you a free PDF uh copy of the book all right and um and again uh we're on track to doing the Halloween live stream between me and my hubby all right And like I said, we will be talking all things paranormal. I'll probably sooner once we get closer to the um to the actual date, I'm going to probably give out a number so people could call in and text me questions so I can get some questions ready. Uh and then, you know, we'll have the chat going, but at the same time, I'll have some questions lined up and uh we'll talk. Hey, you know, whatever makes your weird little heart happy. We'll talk about that. So again, thank you for being part of my audience. come back next week and the week after and the week after because i have a great list of guests coming on with a lot of interesting things to talk about so till then take care